Welcome to our Transgender School podcast. We're here to talk about diverse transgender identities and experiences so that we can all be better allies and advocates. We'll also discuss current events, welcome guests, and share actions you can take to support trans people. I'm Bridget, and my daughter Jackie came out as a transgender woman about four years ago when she was 19 years old. I was totally unprepared, but I have learned a lot since then. And now Jackie and I are passionate about sharing what we've learned. When I came to terms with being trans, I realized that I absolutely needed to transition, but coming out was very stressful. Now that a few years have passed, things have gotten somewhat easier, and I want to help other trans people navigate their own unique experiences. Welcome back, everybody, to the Transgender School podcast. We are so excited to talk with our guest today. Thank you so much for listening in or watching on YouTube. Quick introduction, I am Bridget, and I'm Jackie's very proud mom, and we co-founded Transgender School together to educate people about diverse transgender identities and experiences and to teach people how to be allies and advocates along with us. So we're really happy to have you back. Jackie, quick intro of you. Yeah, my name's Jackie. I'm a political servant and a public servant and political organizer in San Francisco. And I'm glad to be here today with uh, Lauren. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yes. Thank you so much, Jackie. And so I will go ahead and, and briefly try to briefly, she's asked me to briefly introduce her because I could go on and on and on, but I'll briefly introduce our amazing guest today, Lauren N. Nile, who is a dear friend and has taught me a tremendous amount. Lauren is an author, a keynote speaker, and an organizational development trainer and a retired attorney. She's the author of the book, which you all need to immediately get and read, the book Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line. It's an incredible book. It was life-changing for me. I learned so much from it. Lauren is, as I mentioned, keynote speaker, trainer, retired attorney. She's also a former voiceamerica.com radio show host. She's a former host of The Wisdom in the Middle, a Los Angeles-based cable public interest television show. Lauren has 31 years of broad experience designing, developing, and implementing a wide range of organizational development activities intended to assist organizations in increasing both their empathy and their emotional intelligence. As a consultant, she's worked with a very wide variety of nonprofit organizations, educational institutions, government agencies, and at the federal, state, and local levels. So Jackie and Lauren have lots of experience working with government, local, and beyond. So she's worked with Fortune 500 companies as well, corporations. And Lauren's often asked to deliver keynote addresses on a variety of issues. She also is named the 2018 Cal Poly Pomona Diversity Champion. She was named one of the 2019 Outstanding Voices of Palm Springs and was the recipient of the 2019 Greater Palm Springs Pride Spirit of Stonewall Advocate of the Year Award. Amazing, Lauren. Congratulations on all of that. Amazing. She has also been quoted in the Washington Post, Business Week, and Christian Science Monitor, and she's been interviewed on Fox Network Morning News. Lauren has her BA in philosophy from the University of New Orleans. She has an MA in philosophy from the University of Connecticut, and her Doctor of Jurisprudence degree from Cornell University School of Law. She's a retired member of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. And Lauren's goal, the goal of her writing and her work, her speaking, her training, is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. So I know from all of that, and there's so much more that we left out, trust me, you know that you're very, very lucky. And we are very honored to be here speaking with Lauren. I want to say a couple things on a personal note. Lauren is a dear friend, a colleague. We have worked together many times, which has been my great honor. Lauren used to come to my classes and speak out of the kindness of her heart. She came to my intercultural communication classes when I was working, when I was still a professor. I'm a retired professor now. And she would come and talk the week that we would talk about race as a social construct. And she would blow my students' minds, really, about the whole concept of race and and change and challenge everything they thought they knew about it. And we would just 
have an amazing conversation and my students would always report that it was one of the most meaningful eye-opening classes of the semester. Jackie got to come one semester for Lauren. I dragged her. I was like, you got to come and see Lauren. And now I know she was so glad she did. Lauren lives in Palm Springs with her lovely wife, Barbara, of almost 20 years. She also used to work with me in the educational opportunity program. So along with me and Jackie, I know that she deeply cares about equity and justice in the world on on every front. And so we share that and we will be talking about that in a variety of ways. And I could say so much more, but I hope that at least gave everybody an idea of how amazing you are. Did I leave anything out or get anything wrong, Lauren, honestly? Or what would you add? What would you say? Bridget, thank you so much for the introduction. I wouldn't add a thing. I think that's more than enough than anyone would ever need to know about me. (laughs) But I do thank you for all of your kind words. My question based on that introduction is, did living in Ithaca when you went to Cornell make you want to move to Palm Springs? Like, which did you prefer weather-wise there? (laughs) Well, I do love Ithaca because it is, in fact, there are lots of bumper stickers that say Ithaca is gorgeous, G-O-R-G-E-S, because it is. There are waterfalls everywhere, and I love Mm. waterfalls. It's Mm. green. It's right on Lake Cayuga. Mm. I love Ithaca. That part of upstate New York in the Finger Lakes region is just incredible. Having said that, Palm Springs is wonderful, too, in its own way. The desert has its own kind of, of, I don't know, mystery, if you will. And the mountains, the dramatic mountains here that are everywhere are just just unbelievable. So they both have a big appeal for me. And for me to be the happiest Lauren I can be, I need both. So I, (laughs) I, I try to get to both the East and the West Coast. I try to go to the East Coast rather pretty often so that I can have the woods and the trees as well as the desert. Yeah, great question, Jackie. And you have traveled far and wide, I know, Lauren. So it is interesting always to hear about your take on the various locations that you've spent time in. So really the first question is to tell us more about you. You know, I've had the honor of hearing you speak on so many occasions about your experiences growing up in the segregated South, and you have so much wisdom based on so much life experience that many of us can't imagine and can learn so much from. So anything, I'm going to ask super open-ended, like just tell us about you and your experience in your life. Sure. Happy to. Thank you, Bridget. As some of your podcast listeners may know, I did grow up in the segregated South. I was born in 1953 and President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 64, obviously, 11 years later. So I I was actually headed to middle school when integration came. And so I remember very well what it was like to have to ride on the back of the bus and what it was like to not be able to go to Howard Johnson's and get ice cream and what it was like Mm -hmm. for my parents not to be able to go listen to some jazz in the French Quarter because everything was either white only Or if it was shared, it was the spaces were very much segregated based on race. So, yeah, that's the memory that I have that's still very clear. And by the way, I think that it's a history that someone should write. Isabel Wilkerson, wonderful writer, wrote The Warmth of Other Sons. And what she did is she brilliantly chronicled so many of the stories of African-Americans who left the South during the Great Migration, looking for a better life, fleeing the violence, racial violence, and trying to make a, a new path for their families. And it was obviously an outstanding work, made the New York Times bestsellers list. Mm-hmm. Well, someone like Isabel Wilkerson, who knows, she may even see this podcast, should chronicle our stories of segregation because those of us who remember it are older now. And I am the last, I'm in the last group within my generation to remember it. I have a younger sister who's nine years younger than me. So she just made it as a baby boomer. She was born in 62. Mm -hmm. So she just made it as a baby boomer, Mm -hmm. but she does, she has no memory of segregation, none. Because she was born in 62 and the law was passed in 64. Mm -hmm. So my group, I'm in the middle group of baby boomers. I have two older brothers and my oldest brother is at the very beginning of the baby boomer generation. Mm -hmm. He and my other brother and I remember it well uh, because he was 21 years old when it Mm -hmm. ended. Um, Mm -hmm. So, but we're getting older. So someone should chronicle that history, get our stories Mm -hmm. before we're no longer here because it would be a shame for those stories to not be recorded for history. 
So, mm-hmm. but because I did grow up in that era, yeah, I saw the injustice of treating people differently just based on some immutable characteristic of, of birth. And so I became very sensitive to injustice. And I still am. I have been all my life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, presently, for example, I'm very sensitive to, you know, unarmed African-Americans being killed primarily by the police, but also by vigilante European Americans as well. You know, I'm very sensitive to that. I'm very sensitive to the alarming rise in hate crimes, violent hate crimes being committed against Asian Americans. I'm very sensitive to the alarming rise of anti-Semitism, both in this country and abroad. You know, I'm very sensitive to the number of transgender women who are killed in this country every year. You know, I'm very sensitive to, and I have some notes, so I, I will refer to them to the alarming rise of anti, specifically anti-brown and anti-black immigration sentiments mm-hmm. and actions, you know, in this country, you know, to the violence that women face every day in our lives, to war and how ridiculous it is as a means of solving conflict, you know, just what human beings have done to the environment. I'm really sensitive to that stuff. What we've even done to space. I just read an article yesterday saying that in 2024, I believe, the European Space Agency is going to start the process of cleaning up all of the billions of tons of space junk that we human beings put out there. We've polluted our planet. And now we've even polluted the space that's above our atmosphere. It's incredible. We've left junk on the moon. We've left junk on Mars. Anyway, to make a long story short, I'm sensitive to all of it. And it's its source is the way I grew up. It's mm-hmm. source. My sensitivity to all of those things is the fact that I saw so much discrimination mm-hmm. and to people just based on their immutable characteristic of, in that case, race when mm-hmm. I was a child. So yep. in a sense, yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way because I'm happy um, to be who I am. Mm. I Gosh, Lauren, I always learned so much from you. I, I, I haven't heard you say all of that in quite that way, but it moved me deeply. And I, I share all of those concerns and sensitivities with you. And I know, Jackie, you do as well. I know, Jackie, that you do a lot of work on and you know a lot about all of those challenges in today's world. Any thoughts from you about everything that Lauren just shared? I guess a follow-up question is just how do you think we can get more people to understand that perspective? And how do you think we can get more people to feel that empathy for other humans and for our planet and for the sustainability of our civilization and humanity? Boy, Jackie, thank you. Of course, that's the $64,000 question. (laughs) And those wiser than I are struggling with and are challenged by the answer to that question. But I'll say one that... I think we learn best through experience. I mean, I could, you know, I, I could put up a thousand bullets in a five day PowerPoint presentation as a trainer Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and still it wouldn't be as impactful as someone's experiencing discrimination or harassment or seeing someone that they love experience it. So, you know, I think there's a way in which we have to, as human beings, get out there and be curious about and then be willing to try to the extent that it's possible to try to walk in someone else's shoes. Because as someone said, it's easy to be prejudiced from afar. But when you get close to people and you, you, what happens is that you get to see their humanity mm-hmm. and to experience their humanity. And then the prejudices are much harder to hold on to. So that's, that's one thing. Now, how we get people to be willing to try to experience someone else's life That's another question, but I do know that we learn best through experience. And as a trainer for years, I've always tried to have participants engage in exercises that to the extent that it's possible, have Mm -hmm. them walk in someone else's shoes, even if for no more than 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's very different because you know that after 15 minutes, it's over, but still they get a taste of it and it does change some people. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Secondly, though, I think that we can raise the empathy of the human species, at least a bit, not as much through experience, but at least we can raise it a bit through education. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that that education will then cause people to want to have some experiences. Mm -hmm. And by education, I mean just, well, we'll get into that later, I know. But education, having people unlearn as many things as we have Mm -hmm. them learn. 
Mm-hmm. And that education, the unlearning and the unlearning, I hope will then, uh, as I say, result in them wanting experience, being curious enough to say, I need to look into this. I need to maybe feel this. And that's when the world begins to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I'm speechless. Yes. What you said about the direct experience, I think we see a lot in our community of folks who are, our community in transgender school is is comprised of people who are transgender, many parents of transgender people, many allies of transgender people, people who want to learn, who want to advocate. And so they're making that choice that you talked about. Like sometimes I'm baffled, you know, when people join our Facebook group, for instance, we're over 600 there now and everybody's really active. It's like, tell us why you joined. And, and some people just say, I just want to learn. I just want to be around people whose experience I don't know about so that I can learn and I can see what you're talking about and what are the challenges and the issues of the day. And we're posting about all the anti-trans legislation and, you know, people are there to learn. And some people, as you're saying, Lauren, just come because they just want to learn. They're not trans. They don't know anybody who's trans. And that actually gives me hope even more than, I mean, a large part of the population is parents of trans kids because they you know, also to what you're saying, they are affected by it. And many of those parents will say, I never would have taken up this issue. I never would have known these things, but now it's my child. I have to, right? So so we kind of see that whole spectrum of what you just described and why, what causes people to care and to want to build that empathy and that understanding. And so one of the things, you know, that we are asked a lot, we, we've done a lot of education now, you know, we've done a lot of webinars, we have a webinar for sale that we had fully edited and recorded and packaged. And, you know, we've talked a lot about being transgender and really tried to educate people about Jackie's experience and her coming out and me. And one of the things that our community is asking us more and more and that we are dedicated to is bringing in diverse voices to have conversations with us, you know. So we really want to hear from you about your experience. And especially, you know, we're, we're looking at generational differences here, differences in race and culture. And you both identify as queer, but that looks different for each of you and each person who identifies as queer. So all that is to say, our next question that we really love to hear about from your experiences, what was coming out like for you? What will you tell us about that? We'd love to hear. Absolutely. Well, fortunately, with the vast majority of my family, it was nothing. It was a nothing burger, you know. I told my family and I told my family that, hey, guess what? I'm gay. And they were like, okay. You know, uh, you're not telling us you have cancer. Uh, you know, they were, I mean, really, they were just my, my brothers, um, my aunts, um, my cousins, everybody was like, okay. It's like, what's the news about that? You know, not that we always knew, but Laurie, we love you. You know, it doesn't matter. We love you. You know, there was one person in my family for whom that was not true, unfortunately, and someone whom I love dearly. And it, it is that person's religious um, beliefs that made it very difficult for them to accept that I'm a member of the LGBTQ community, you know, that I'm queer, that it was very difficult for them. That said, because that person does love me so much, and I know that they do, and the love is genuine and it's also mutual, they have really tried hard over the years to be kind and as compassionate as as they can be given their religious beliefs. So the person has, for example, said, oh, I'm so happy for you and Barbara in terms of the trip you're about to take. Have a great time. Oh, please tell Barbara we said hi. You know, all, you know, really trying. But there are ways in which the lack of full acceptance has come through. Being not my relative as much as their spouse, being uncomfortable with me being around my niece, as if I was going to maybe do something inappropriate with my niece or or influencer or something, that hurt deeply. And when I told other relatives, a couple of other relatives about that, that this person seemed to be uncomfortable with me being around my niece, they couldn't believe it. They were like, what? Laurie, that's crazy, because they know me, you know. So there's that one situation with my family, but with everyone else, it was just wonderful because it was non-eventful. In terms of the community, I was really fortunate. I came out 
in the late 70s in New York City. And wow, talk about being in the right place at the right time. It was 1979. It was 10 years after Stonewall. I lived in the village. The person that I was with was my first partner when I came out. And she was co-owner of Juna Books, which was one of the two women's bookstores in New York City at the time. So wow, I got to meet Adrian Rich and I got to meet Andrea Dworkin. And, you know, I was the uh, MC of a Sweet Honey in the Rock concert. I mean, I was in New York City in 1979, living four blocks from Stonewall, you know, it was great. So my, my coming out was incredible. So yeah, mostly very, very good. Yeah, I definitely identify with the sense of <laughs> right place. I mean, I don't know, San Francisco's maybe had more fun times in the past, I'm sure, but definitely right place as far as coming out in San Francisco, being politically involved, being around other trans people, other queer people made such a difference for me. And I I really, I know that there are so many people who come out in scenarios that are not like that. And it really makes me want to do what I can to try to make the rest of the country more like that or try to make these spaces more accessible for people to come here. Because unfortunately, that's one of the things we've seen that's changed in New York and San Francisco since the 70s and the 80s and the 90s even is that they're just not affordable for most young queer people trying to get there and trying to get a foothold now. But yeah, such a powerful story. I I would just love to hear more about your experience in New York City as we could probably do a whole podcast on that too. But Lauren's experience in New York City. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Yes. does. laughs> right. Totally. Well, and thank you for saying what you said, Jackie, because I actually do have some notes here. I wanted to express that same sentiment that while my experience was 90%, 95% positive, that isn't true for everyone. And in fact, it isn't true for many people. There are, you know, kids who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, who are belittled in their families, who face violence in their families and outside, who are put out of their families, who then face homelessness. And because they face homelessness, often then, you know, find their way into street sex work. And that often leads to drug abuse. And the tragedy is that we've wasted so many of those young, precious lives, you know, So many of those young people would have gone on to become, you know, artists and, I don't know, nurses and scientists and people in the trades, plumbers and carpenters, people who have who would make contributions as home health care workers and lawyers. And we've lost so many of our young transgender people and gay people and lesbian people and bisexual people because their coming out stories were very different from yours and mine, Jackie. So thank you for reminding me to to say that piece too, because I, I really didn't want to share that. And yes, I agree. We have to do something to change that. And that could be a whole other podcast. What is that something? Well, yeah, and I, I think that brings it back to what you were saying about people's deeply held religious beliefs and how those deeply held religious beliefs often whether that is what the text or the spirit of the faith actually encourages, those personally held beliefs often draw bright red lines and say, you can't do this. If you do this, you're going to hell. If you do this, you're damned for all eternity. And so, yeah, I mean, like you said, we could do a whole podcast on how do you, can you change that type of thinking? Or is it just a matter of providing the social supports for people who who live in those families? Or should we try to do both? But yeah, that could probably be a whole other, I don't know if that's what we want to talk about, but I I think that's just so interesting. It is. I'd love to talk to a psychologist about that. Totally. I mean, I talk, I've talked about how, I've talked about on our podcasts and on our videos about how it seems like on the most basic level, some parents just have an idea of who they want their kid. And this can extend beyond being queer, but parents have an idea of who they want their kid to be and kids are rarely exactly who their parents want them to be. So in most cases, the parent comes to a point in their life where they have to say, okay, well, am I going to accept my kid on their terms as the person that they are, or am I going to throw them out and pretend they don't exist and just cut them off because I'm more attached to the idea of them than I am to the actual person. But I guess, I don't know, maybe it's a question of how do we educate people, young people to not have those beliefs? Can we move society in the right direction one generation at a time? Or can we actually change the beliefs in the minds of those people who hold them so deeply? I don't know. 
Well, I know, as I was saying earlier, I know that education is one way, experience is another, but we also know psychologists have told us that exposure is yet another. Being exposed firsthand to people can actually shift unconscious bias, even, and this is fascinating to me, they say that even one study or more has indicated that even imagining people in marginalized groups, people about whom you have a stereotype, imagining them in positive social roles can shift unconscious bias. So yes, there is a way in which our brains are malleable around, around these issues. So for example, you know, seeing, I don't know, a Hispanic person or an African-American person or an LGBTQ person as your doctor, as your physician and getting to trust them as your physician, that exposure, and that's also experience, can really start to shift uh, no matter what a person's religious ideas are actually. Um, but we know that even without, without the experience, just the exposure in terms of viewing videos, listening to podcasts like this one, exposure to ideas, exposure to other people, so that you get to see people's humanity is yet another powerful way of doing that. So I guess it's the yeah. three E's, education, exposure, and experience. Mm, ooh, I like that model, Lauren. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> we that's, should build something around that. Yeah, it, well, it's a alliteration too. Yeah, yeah. So I love mental maps. So yes. I'm for that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, I guess my only, I'll get back to our pre-prepared questions after this, but I just one more follow-up question, just because I'm curious, um, given your life experience and everything, where, where you think we're headed is, do you feel like we're headed in the right direction to some degree? Like, you know, it's, it's, it feels like it's so complicated. Like we look and on one hand, there's a real movement that is being carried on to, to fight for social justice and to fight for equity in this country and in the world. But at the same time, there's 30 million Americans who believe that a cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles control the country and the election was stolen from Donald Trump and they're going to have to carry out mass violence in order to right that wrong. So like, where are we headed? You know, how do you, how do you feel about this moment in our, in our country and in our world? You know, it's, thank you for that question, Jackie. It's interesting. I guess at any time we human beings could say it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, Certainly during my childhood, we could have said that given what was happening there in terms of violence, racial violence, but also what was happening with regard to the civil rights movement at the same time. And that's certainly true today in view of what you just described, Jackie, as the two different movements, if you will. I personally believe, and this is as much a matter of faith for me as anything, that we are in a transition period right now. I believe that as a species, we are transitioning into a state of overall, generally, higher awareness, greater consciousness. Yeah, higher consciousness, I guess. And I know, I know that sounds really new agey, but I don't have any other words for it. Greater awareness, increased empathy, understanding. I really do think that that's where we're headed but I think that those of us alive today are in the transition period. We have just, you know, for people who believe in astrology, left the age of Pisces and we're in the dawn of the age of Aquarius. If you don't believe in, in astrology, that's okay too. But certainly the last 2000 year era is waning. We've already left it, but a lot of what happened during that era I mean, we can look at what happened in terms of slavery and colonization and the Inquisition and what happened to Native Americans and Europeans taking over basically the world except for China. I mean, we can look at all of that stuff and see that it, ha it started, it has started ending. It started, well, I don't know, 60 years ago, really, around the world. And I think we're still on that same path, but it's not going to leave easily. Those who want to hold on to that worldview are going to put up a fight. And I think that's what we're seeing now. But I do believe in my heart of hearts that they are destined to lose. That the forces of love and compassion and understanding on this planet are far greater. Gandhi himself said, you know, and I won't get the quote exactly right, but he said, there have always been tyrants and basically people who do 
bad things. And then he went on to say, and for a time, they can seem invincible. But in the end, good always wins. Think of it, he said, always. And when I do think of that in that way, it does give me hope because colonization ended at, for the most part, around the planet. Race-based slavery ended. I mean, we still have sexual slavery on the planet. I think that will end for sure. But race-based slavery, for the most part, in its most egregious form, ended on this planet. You know, the Nazis lost. The fascists lost. Those who would have continued apartheid in South Africa lost. I mean, I could go on and on. I have a whole list, actually, of the big historical losers. And they do always lose in the end. So I I have great faith that, yes, we're like this. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it does bend toward justice. But that bending takes this as its uh, way of bending, if you will. Three steps forward, one back. Two steps forward, maybe two back. Five steps forward, maybe one back or three. But so it's like this. It's like how the seasons change. Not a gradual inclination, but back and forth, back and forth until you reach that final goal. That was very well said. Yeah, we got to keep the faith, but it's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah, until we reach that cruising altitude. But very inspiring, Lauren. I think I hope our listeners, I'm sure, are listening carefully and intently because that's the hope that we need. Because we're all, if we're going to be out there fighting for justice, we have to believe that it's possible to some extent, right? So I think you just gave us that hope in a beautiful way that we can hang on to. <laughs> Last thing I'll say about that is that we have to keep our eye on that prize. We have to have that hope because we don't know how long this transition was, will be. We don't know how long it will last nor do we know how low it will get until we reach bottom and start back up. We don't know. And it can seem dark and depressing, but if we keep our eye on that prize and on that large arc, I think it'll help us through this time. So I think we we can all easily get into this big, you know, philosophical, global perspective kind of conversation, which I love. And we want to also make sure to come back to your experience, Lauren, and really learn. There's so much to learn from your unique personal experience. And we'd love to hear about, you know, there's a lot of talk about intersectionality and what does it mean? You know, so the question really is, What can you share with us about the intersectional nature of your race and your sexual orientation? And it's kind of related to the next question, like what do people assume about you because of those two aspects of your identity? If you want to talk about it all together or separate it out, but like what is the intersectional nature of your experience around race and sexual orientation? Right. Well, my experience as an African-American person in this country, I think Many people may have a a fairly good idea about, but maybe not, maybe not. So very briefly, I'll just share that um, in addition to my childhood experiences, presently, presently, as a soon-to-be 68-year-old person, number one, I am often assumed to be a thief. When I go into stores, very often, I'm either followed around or monitored as I'm checking myself out at one of those self-check stations. It happens all the time to me, Um, much more often than I think most people would even realize. In my workshops over the years, so many people have said to me when I've shared those experiences, but Lauren, you have three degrees. You went to an Ivy League law school. You blah, 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 blah. I can't believe, I thought it was all about economics. That kind of stuff happens to poor black people, poor Hispanic people. Now, it doesn't matter. I could be riding down the highway with three degrees and an Ivy League law degree and all of that other stuff. It doesn't matter because what people see is what they respond to. And what they see is that I'm African-American. So in terms of the kinds of experiences that I have based on race, yeah, I still experience all of that stuff that the average, no, I shouldn't say the average, that many people of color experience just based on the color of our skin, assumed to be a thief, you know, not given the benefit of the doubt in many situations in which a European American person doing the exact same thing would be given the benefit of the doubt, those kinds of things. In terms of the intersectionality of race and sexual orientation, my sexual orientation, yeah, it's interesting because 
you know, Barbara has a new family now as an adoptee, a 64-year-old adoptee. She just found her birth family. And so once again, it was, oh boy, I got to come out to my, to my new family. What's that going to be like? After searching for them for 15 years and finding them at the age of 64, will they accept me or will they reject me because of my sexual orientation? You know, it has nothing to do with race, obviously, but it has everything to do with sexual orientation. So there's that, that double whammy at play. There have been times when we see what's going on in this country that she and I have sometimes more seriously than at other times said, we need to move out of this country. You know, uh, there's a whole YouTube genre on African-Americans that have moved to Ghana. And we look at these people and, you know, one man said, I had to move because I owed it to my son. I couldn't raise him in the United States and be a responsible parent. It's just interesting listening to all of these African-Americans who've moved to Ghana and listening to him share. For example, when I go outside, I'm just a man. I'm not a black man because all the men here are black. I'm just a man for the first time in my life. I'm just a person. So it's very interesting listening to African-Americans who have moved back to the continent, talk about their experiences. And yet when we think about that, we think about the possible homophobia in some of those countries. We think about what it would be like to live as black people. Oh, the freedom to just be human beings. But boy, we think, yep, but could we go there as a same-sex couple? And, you know, and it's not every African nation, but it's a number of them, you know. So there's that intersectionality. There's that double whammy. So, yes, you know, racism and homophobia are double whammy in my life. But since I'm also a woman, of course, I have the triple whammy of also being a woman and having to deal with the kinds of issues that women deal with in terms of personal safety and all of that. You know, being verbally harassed in public places, all of those things. So, yeah, boy, intersectionality is a real interesting and very present reality in my life as a person of color, as an, not a person of color, depends on where you are, as an American of color, I should say, and as a member of the queer community and also as a woman. And I'm so happy that there are so many scholars now who are taking on the issue of intersectionality and studying it and learning about it and educating people about it because it's real. Well, it's, it's especially interesting to also think about how a lot of the far right kind of homophobic Christian extremism that is prevalent in a lot of African countries is the result of American missionaries who kind of lost favor here and went there and pushed their same ideology onto another population and, and have now had severe consequences for LGBTQ people living in those countries. And then yeah, just the intersectional nature of being a queer person. And I was just reading an article the other day about celebrity, white celebrities, of course, who've gotten away with things that basically no person of color in America gets away with. So a lot of it was like vehicular manslaughter. And a great example is Caitlyn Jenner, who killed someone in a car accident in a way that was completely negligent. And when you look at the case, when you look at the case law, when you look at all the similar cases where people of color were the ones behind the wheel, they went to jail. She did not go to jail. So great example of how even as a queer person, even as an LGBTQ person, especially in America, the way you get treated by our institutions is going to get filtered through that lens. Absolutely. Very, very good point. I mean, you know, when you think about it, there is a lot to be learned, if you will, about how daily indignities impact us in our various identities and how unearned privilege impacts us in our various identities. So Caitlin, in that instance, had white privilege, even though she doesn't live with gender identity privilege. And now she doesn't live with sex privilege, but she still had white privilege, you know, and that's a way in which I think that's one of the main lessons around unearned privilege that at least on our own racial privilege. You know, yes, you can grow up white in this country and you can grow up poor. You can be uneducated. You can be a person of bad morals, if you will. But when people look at you, see, it's all based on what they experience when they see you. When people look at you, they're not going to necessarily, probably at all, know any of that. And so you won't have that automatic, what is for many people, that automatic assumption of thief, 
oh, what are you doing here? You're out of place here. You must be up to something. Like when Barbara and I were followed around in the neighborhood, right outside of our neighborhood, we were followed around. This happened before the just before the pandemic hit. We were taking a walk and one of the neighbors literally got into her car and followed us through her neighborhood until we left. You know, Barbara was riding. We have little uh, electric bicycles that we bought during the pandemic because we had to do something to get out of the house. And she was taking one of her first rides on her little electric bike through the neighborhood. One of the neighbors who was at the gate was about to leave. But when he saw her on the bike, literally backed up and followed her until she got back to our house. And he could see that, you know, we were the homeowners of this house. I mean, those are the kinds of things that happen to us still at this age, no matter that we played by the rules and did everything that society said we're supposed to do to be, quote, successful, unquote. None of that matters. So, yeah, the intersectionality, you know, of our lives, all of our lives as queer people, as people of color, as white people, as people with disabilities, as a person who doesn't have a disability, in my case, there's just so much there for us to learn. And and you're right. I think we could do a whole podcast on it. Well, I think you're so right to point out the way in which it's all like a snap judgment of a person based on how they appear. And I think as a trans person, that's something that I'm pretty intimately familiar with because it's like something we don't always talk about a ton or haven't talked about necessarily on on transgender school, but is a very real thing in the trans community is passing privilege. And is someone going to look at you and realize you're trans in that instant when they make a calculation about who you are, is trans going to come into the calculation? And, you know, as someone who has fallen on both sides of that for a lot of my life, like as someone who, depending on whether I put makeup on or whether I do a certain thing, I might land more solidly on one side of it. It's, it's such a fascinating experience. Um, and it's so, so revealing of, of the way we see each other and the way we interact with each other and the way it's all filtered through these expectations and these roles that we're supposed to play that we don't even think twice about. It's really eye-opening. Oh, yes. And boy, Jackie, I just learned something from you that, yes, there is a difference in the transgender community based on people who pass and people who choose not to or just perhaps it may be more difficult for them to pass because, yes, it's based on what people see. So, you know, I remember right after 9-11, a number of of Middle Eastern Americans saying, well, light-skinned Middle Eastern Americans, I was white until 9-11. And now... People see me and if they can tell that I'm Middle Eastern um, and not from Western Europe or Northern Europe, yeah, it's a whole different experience now. So the experience of being judged by, by what people see is something that I think you have to live to really, really be able to get it. And I just heard for the first time that experience of it, Jackie, so thank you for that. Because I can imagine it's very different for a transgender person who can pass and does chooses to pass as opposed to a transgender person who either chooses not to or uh, for whom it's more difficult to pass. So, Lauren, we'd love to also hear from you what suggestions you have. I know, and I'll do a little plug, Lauren was also on my other podcast and gave us seven amazing suggestions for how to be an anti-racist. So please go right over everybody listening to the Right Questions podcast, which you can find on all major podcast apps, Apple and Spotify. You can find it on all the same places that this podcast is. And she talked to us about her suggestions, very powerful, very timely and helpful suggestions on how to be an anti-racist. And today we wanted to ask her to share with us how people can be allies, not just allies. It's like the two you know terms that float around are being an ally, being an advocate. And we're speaking for myself, I want to be both, you know, but I think I want to move toward being more of an advocate and not just an ally. How can I, how can I be actively fighting as an ally, as a cisgender, you know, straight woman, but who's the mom of a transgender woman who's, you know, dedicated to how, what can we do to be advocates for the LGBTQ community? Sure, absolutely. So I will definitely answer that. uh, Well, I have an answer, of course, not the answer, 
But in looking at my notes, I realized that there was something else in response to the last question that Great. I'd like to answer. But <laughs> yeah. all of the content that I'm about to share and answer to that last question is a reason why we need allies and advocates. So it's sort of a transition. We will get there. And I'm sorry, I didn't think to look at my notes before we moved on. No, it's but great. In terms of some of the assumptions that people make about me based on my sexual orientation. And it's me and just, I think, all members of the LGBTQ community, really. I have, you know, I love lists. So I, have, I do have a list, several things. Great. One is that we're all sexually promiscuous, that it's all about sex, that everything we do has to do with sex. You know, we're just human beings <laughs> and we're no more nor less sexual than heterosexual people, you know, and we exist on a spectrum of people who are more sexual and less sexual based on who we are as a person, not having anything to do with our, you know, gender identity, our sexual orientation or anything else. So the whole sexually promiscuous thing is just one of those assumptions that's just got to go. It's got to go. It's so false. Number two, that we don't have lasting, loving relationships. I live in the desert, and I would say, without exaggerating or or engaging in hyperbole, probably 95% of the people that I know, of the the gay male um, couples that I know, and of the gay women or lesbian or queer women or, you know, yeah, couples that I know, have been together at least 20 years, at least 137 years. So that is a stereotype that's based on total lack of information, lack of exposure, and lack of experience. We do have loving, lasting relationships. Number three, that we're sexual predators, especially, you know, with regard to little kids, that we're going to attack children or be sexually inappropriate with children. I don't even want to say very much about that other than it's ridiculous. You know, okay, let me go through the list. No, it's not true. And nor is there any evidence that bears that out. Do any research and you'll see. It's primary, primarily heterosexual men that are sexual predators. Number four, that we try to convert people. Wrong. You know, we know, most of us know that we didn't choose our sexual orientation, our sexual identity, our gender expression. It's not a matter of choice. I'll talk about that a little, a little bit later. But because we know that and we know this is who we have been for for all of our lives, we know that we can't convert people, you know? I mean, we know that sexual orientation, sexual ide- uh, gender identity, gender expression all exist on a continuum, and that we're born who we're born. We know that. You can't, I can't convert a friend, you know, to be uh, queer or, or gay or lesbian. That's ridiculous. And if we could convert people, we would be converting them. Wait a we'd, minute. We'd all be gay by now. <laughs> You know? So yeah, no, just do your own research. Number five, all queer women are masculine and hate men. (laughs) I mean, I have to laugh because they are so ridiculous. And I'd like to believe that far fewer people believe these kinds of things now than in the 50s and 60s and maybe even the 70s. I'd like to believe that the percentage of people who believe the kinds of things that I'm talking about now is much smaller now than they were you know, in my early life, for example. But yeah, that's another one. Um, all queer women are masculine. Again, you know, our, our gender expression exists on a continuum like it does for all other women. We hate men. Not true. We, you know, many of us have fathers and brothers and friends who are male. And that's so simplistic as to be ridiculous. Number six, all queer men are both effeminate and flamboyant. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Again, there's a continuum of gender expression for queer men as there are, and gay men as there are for heterosexual men. Number seven, transgender people are mentally ill. Wrong. No research bears that out. The American Psychological Association, all of the experts in the medical field and the psychiatric field and the psychological field say that that is not true. Being transgender is not being mentally ill. It's being transgender. And that's a whole other podcast in and of itself. It's just one of the gender expressions that exists among human beings. All transgender women are drag queens. Again, laughable. You know, most uh, transgender people who come out just come out and then continue to live their lives. If they were politically active before they came out, they're going to be politically active after they come out. You know, if they loved art or music before they came out, they're still going to be that person after they come out. We're just human beings for crying out loud. Ugh. 
Number eight, you can't be LGBTQ and be spiritual because it's against God. There are so many LGBTQ people who are as spiritual and as religious as anyone else who's not in the LGBT community. Our range of spirituality, it's the same as the range or the spectrum of spirituality for people who are not LGBTQ, ranging from people who are atheists and agnostic to people who are very religious and and or very spiritual, because we're just human beings. We're not different, you see. Uh, So yes. Okay, I got to go on. Number nine, and this is the last one. As human beings, we don't choose our race. We don't choose our sex. We don't choose whether or not we're born with a disability. We don't choose our height. We don't choose our body type. Nobody would disagree with that, I don't believe. Everybody would agree. And I I try not to speak in generalities, but I'll speak in generalities this time. I think everybody who is sane would acknowledge that we don't choose our race. We don't choose our sex. We don't choose our, whether we're going to be born with a disability, a learning disability, an emotional, a, a, a mental disability. We don't choose our height. We don't choose our body type. None of that is a matter of choice. I think everybody would agree with that. That's one of the few absolutes that I will put out there. By the same token, we also don't choose our gender expression, our gender identity, our sexual orientation. We don't choose any of that. It is all a matter, and wow, the science that's coming out about this, particularly the brain science that's coming out about this, is incredible. It's all a matter of biology. Of course, there may be some non-biological factors that, that might influence those things, but in terms of determining them, it's primarily biological, having to do with, oh, genes, prenatal exposure to hormones, and an embryo sensitivity to those hormones. So we now know, for example, that the brains of, let's say, transgender women are, and MRIs have, have borne this out, are much similar to the brains of people who are born in female bodies than they are to the brains of people who are born in male bodies. We know that the brains of transgender men are similar to the brains of people who are born into male bodies than people who are born into female bodies. The science that's coming out about this stuff is just incredible. So we talk about stereotypes of people based on race. I think I covered that to some extent, and I wanted to put those things out. And I I talk about it in the book that I'm currently writing, that those are some of the stereotypes about people based on gender expression, gender identity, and sexual orientation. So It is for all of those reasons, it is because there is so much lack of awareness, so much lack of understanding about that, that yes, we do need allies, we do need advocates, because the lack of information, lack of understanding leads to such horrible outcomes. The legislation that's being passed now against transgender people in the United States the violence that LGBTQ people face, you know, the discrimination that we still face on our jobs. That's why we're hoping for the Equality Act to be passed. The consequences can be dire. So yes, we need advocates and we need allies. So what are some of the things we can do? The three S's. Alliteration, yes, I do like it. Speak out, show up, and share your resources. Speak out when someone in your family or in your circle of friends says something that's homophobic or transphobic or racist or sexist or anti-Semitic or, you know, anti-Islamic or speak out. And you don't have to go to, you know, go to blows with them, but say, you know, I really have a very different opinion about that. And I'd love to share that with you. And usually they'll go, oh, uh, oh, you take them off guard and you just start sharing, you know, educate, because what you're doing is you're implanting a little seed of cognitive dissonance there. And they'll at least get to know, maybe I can't say that anymore as a freebie, because I don't know who else might, you know, confront me in that same way. So speak out when you hear people express hatred or at least ignorance. Number two, show up when we have demonstrations, you know, when we have rallies, show up, support us in whatever way you can. March if you can, if not, pass out water, but show up, you know, and also volunteer, in organizations that are working for LGBTQ rights and, and liberties, stuff envelopes, you know, write to your senator, your representative, do postcard mailings. Those are at least just two ways to show up, and there are others. And number three, share your resources. 
We always need money. <laughs> you know, organizations, whether they're environmental organizations, LGBTQ organizations, organizations working on, on racism, on sexism, we need resources. So if you can, you know, write a check, that's always welcome. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for, I love your lists. I love that you always come so prepared and, and what you shared is so meaningful and it really is the crux of what we need to understand about the stereotypes and the, and the awful ideas that people have that are so wrong and so harmful and cruel and, and just so, you know, they're just devastating, just creating so much pain and suffering and, and loss of life, as you mentioned earlier. You know, we know, I mean, just, you know, when you mentioned the lack of support from one of your family members, one thing that we try to teach all the time and share is that th- there was a study that said that with a lack of family support, a high level of an unsupportive family, there is eight times higher risk of suicide for a transgender person. Eight times. So when we talk about all of these horrible ideas and stereotypes and and notions and the rejection that LGBTQ people face because of them, no matter how erroneous we know they are, lives are at stake here. This is not something to be taken lightly or brushed off. So thank you for sharing your your very, very important for all of us to hear a list of all the ways that, that LGBTQ people are misunderstood and maligned in, in incredibly unfair, unjust ways and the, and what we can do and what we can do. So the, what we can do is real. It is not hopeless. It is not something that we just should turn a blind eye to and say, well, there's nothing I can do. All of us can be part of this movement. And we thank you for sharing how, because people need to hear how they ask us all the time. And we say some of the things that you said, you've expanded on them. You've provided really specific opportunities. And so this is the call to everybody listening. Like, let's get out there. Let's start doing it. You know, I, I'm calling when I follow Chase Strangio on Instagram. I mean, there are little things you can do. And he puts out there, he's with the ACLU and he's doing all the lawsuits against the states that are passing anti-trans legislation. And he puts very easy things that you can take five minutes to do. Call this congressperson, call this senator, call this governor, because they're going to be voting on whether or not to veto this anti-trans bill. You know, so we there are things we can do. I want people to know that out there. Like, let's, we cannot be complacent. Lives are at stake. Our children's lives are at stake. And so we need to be, we need to be active in your book, Lauren, Race, My Story and Humanity's Bottom Line, you make a very powerful claim. You educate us on so many things that we need to know. And you make a very powerful claim that for the human race to mature and that the human race is one family. And for us to mature, we must see each other as one family. And you scientifically prove this, right? That we all originated on the continent of Africa, that we're so much more alike in our DNA and all the, all the, I know you call yourself a science nerd. So you've got all the science there and the heart, you know, the science combined with the heart and the empathy of knowing that we are, are truly one human family. And it's time to evolve into that awareness and that knowing. So tell us about that, please. Tell us more about that. How do we do that? Boy, there's so much I could say. I'll get it down to just maybe two minutes. Yes, I think it is important for us. I think that's another stage, if you will, or another part, another piece of our evolution as a species to really understand what it means to be a human species. And there is only one on this planet, Homo sapien. There are many that came before us and a couple that existed with us, but they all died out. Now, if Cro-Magnon man was still alive, there'd be different, truly different species on this planet. If Neanderthal man had really survived, there'd be different species, uh, hominid species on this planet, you know. I mean, there are so many that I could name, not only Cro-Magnon, not only Neanderthal, but, but a lot of others that came before us that were humanoid, humanoid. None of them made it except Homo sapiens. We have 46 chromosomes. We are the only ones that made it. So we are one family and we look different because uh, fully formed modern day, modern day African people left the continent of Africa and spread around the world and slowly adapted to different climates. 
resulting in the different looks of humanity, what we call races. But listen, and I know I'm not the first person that you've heard this from, and I will go to my little list here. Our blood is red, no matter what color our skin. There are four human blood types, A, B, A, B, and O. And a Nigerian man who is B negative can save, his blood can save the blood of a white Russian, whereas the blood of a white American man or woman who was, let's say, type O would kill him instantly. Because if you put the wrong blood type in a person, automatic death, instant death. So we can share blood no matter what we look like across this planet. We have the same blood. Women who are born into female bodies all have a menstrual cycle. That's how all of us are born as a result of that, no matter what color. Men, no matter what their color, no matter what the color of their skin, their semen is a milky, whitish, gray color. No matter what color body it comes out of, we are all the same. Our hair grays as we get older. I stopped dyeing mine during the pandemic. Here we are. (laughs) As we get older, our hair grays, no matter what the texture of our hair. And finally, we can all procreate together, which is the true hallmark of a species. The person from some country in sub-Saharan Africa or the person from Southern India, or, well, let's say, I'll say woman, because we have to have both. The woman who's an Aboriginal Australian, any of those women can have a child with a man from Northern Europe or from China or from the Middle East. We all can procreate together and we can only do that because we are an exact genetic match. Some of your listeners may have heard me, if you listen to the anti-racism podcast, make the analogy that if you put a horse and a donkey together, they're close enough genetically so that they can procreate, but they'll create a mule, an animal that has no gonads, no sex organs, so it can't reproduce itself. So it's a biologically non-viable organism. Why? Because its parents, as close as they look, a horse and a donkey, they're not an exact genetic match. Every human being on this planet is an exact genetic match of every other human being on this planet, which is why we can all procreate together. It's time that we mature beyond making hay of all of these differences and realize that no matter what our race, no matter what our gender, no matter what our sex, no matter what our gender expression, our gender identity, our sexuality, our religion, our, how our body looks, We can all learn, for example, to play music. You know, we all, no matter where we are, what we look like, we can all appreciate the beauty of music, the beauty of a beautiful landscape, the mystery of a starry sky at night. You know, I had a list of those things too, and I'm I'm looking for it. I don't know that I'll find it, but at any rate, we all can appreciate Well, at least we all have the same potential for for brilliance. You know, there's no race or no sexual orientation that are the best musicians or the best chess players. We all share in that brilliance. We all uh, have a waking life and a dream life. We all love equally, deeply, our family members, our friends. We all hurt deeply as equally when when we lose someone who's, who's dear to us. We all have the exact same needs for self-esteem and self-worth and love. So, yes, we are one species and one family. That's a whole other podcast. (laughs) And it's time. It's past time for us to mature into that incredibly profound understanding. Thank you so much. I feel like that was a perfect note to end on, unless there was anything else that you wanted to share that we didn't ask about. Oh, thank you, Jackie. No, you and your mom, you and Bridget have been so generous with your time and allowing me to share some of my thoughts and and feelings about these issues. I think I've gotten it all out and I appreciate that so much. Thank you again for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure to work to work with you, Bridget, my good friend, mm-hmm. and to it's my first time working with you, Jackie, but hopefully it won't be the last and it's it was wonderful seeing you again as well. 
It was great to see you again, too. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time and for educating us again so generously and our audience who I who will learn so much from you. And we, we just can't thank you enough. You are a treasure and I can't wait to read your new book. So everybody be on the lookout for that. We will make sure to put all Lauren's information in the show notes, the link to her book and her website and all her amazing work. I know that everyone who listens is going to want to learn much more from you, Lauren. So thank you so, so much for being here with us. And we will definitely talk much more. (laughs) And I thank you. I just thank you from the bottom of my heart. I learned so much. I adore you. I am so grateful to you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you so much. And I can't wait for us to get together at my house in the fall. Yes. I'm, oh, I am so looking forward to that. I can't wait so much to talk about and, and not have time limits, big time limits on it. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. You're a dear friend. You're a dear friend, Bridget. I love you and I thank you. Oh, I love you, Lauren. Oh, you are are the best. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our Transgender School podcast. We hope you learned something new and that you're inspired to learn more. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And please be sure to check out our website, transgenderschool.org. You'll find many valuable resources there, including news about upcoming courses we'll be teaching. Make sure to join us for future podcast episodes. We'll catch you on the first Tuesday of every month. 